We are starting a long series in the Gospel of John. We're going to take it. I'm so excited. It's my favorite gospel. Uh, I, I know you're not supposed to say that. It's like saying you have a favorite kid. But it's, it's my favorite gospel. And I'll tell you all the reasons why as we kind of go through this. And we're going to take it chapter by chapter. Uh, so we'll be in it for a number of uh, weeks and months. We're not going to get to all of it. Sometimes the pastor might take just a passage. Sometimes the pastor might take uh, drill down to a verse. Sometimes the pastor might preach the whole thing. So chapter by chapter, you do your own study with it. Uh, the Gospel of John, written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he said about himself. That's how he referred to himself. Now, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And you see right off the bat his identity. There's only two eyewitness gospel accounts, Matthew and John. Mark got his information largely from Peter. Luke had to do research. He was on a historical mission to do research and put together Luke and Acts as the sequel. But John was there, and he saw it all happen. And you might ask, and we're not going to go too much into this today, but you might ask, why are there even four Gospels? What does that even mean? Well, it's actually the wrong question. The right question is, why aren't there more? <laughs> Look, if my friends wrote an autobiographic uh, book about me, which will never happen, and my wife wrote one, and the elders wrote one, and then my childhood friends wrote one, there's going to be some similarities. There might even be a couple of stories that kind of go across all of them, but they're going to be very different. There, there, couldn't be, there could be thousands and thousands and thousands of Gospels written about Jesus' life. Matter of fact, John says at the end of his, there's too many stories to put in any one book. This is chapter 20, verse 31. So here's the whole point. I write this so that you would believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah that he's the one who was to come. So today, two simple, really simple points, and we're going to spend the vast majority on the first one. There is a divine revelation. And here's the divine revelation. Let me go ahead and give it to you. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. And then there's an earthly realization. There's a divine revelation. God wants you to know him. And the earthly realization, which is this, God wants you to make him known. It's, that's the vision statement of Mitchell Road, to know God and then to make him known. It really comes down to being that simple. Let me read just verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. 
divine revelation. God wants you to know him. Let me just walk through this a little bit. First, we see in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. There are many, many sermons, dissertations, PhDs written on just that verse alone. Don't overthink it. A word is an expression. Uh, If you are overjoyed, you would yell or you would say something. Yippee came to my head, but nobody says yippee anymore. You would say something of great joy, or you might look at artwork and you might say, wow, or something might happen and you might say, oh, that hurts. You would express something through words. And here, Jesus, the word becomes flesh. Jesus is the expression of God. He's the expression of the invisible God. He's the incarnate God to show us what God looks like and who he is. And Jesus is quick to say, God's quick to say here, that he's not part of creation. That he was not something that was created. Matter of fact, he has always been. Look at what it says in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In our call to worship this morning, we read Colossians already. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So right off the bat, here's what we get in the Gospel of John. This is the word of God. This is the expression of the invisible God who has become flesh for us. And in him, all things exist and all things hold together. In other words, if you're not realizing that the whole gig is about Jesus, then you're massively off. The whole thing. He is the center of the party. He is the center of life. He is the center of the world. Have you ever been to a birthday party where somebody shows up at the birthday party and thinks it's actually about them and it's not their birthday? I've been to many of those. I'm like, it's not about you. This is all about this girl, this guy. It's their party. And it ruins everything. Everything gets clunky. Everything gets out of alignment when you're catering to somebody who's at the party thinking it's about them, not about the person. The whole of life is to realize it's all about who God is, who was with God, all things made through him. Without him was nothing that was made that was made. And in him was life. and It was the light of men. The creation, and this theme of creation continues with light and darkness. See, he had come to these people, look at verse 9, this true light had come into the world, but even the people that he came to, first to the Jews, rejected him. Now, why would people who have been preparing, look at what it says uh, in verse 11, to his own people who do not receive him, the people had been preparing and waiting for years, centuries even, for this Messiah to come, for this Savior to come. Why did they reject him? Why did they miss him? Well, the same reason we miss him and the same reason we reject him. He didn't fit the box that they wanted him to be in. They wanted a political ruler. Uh, they wanted people to run out Rome. They wanted to get... Uh, the Jewish law back in all the communities. They wanted him to take over all the, uh, the places of power. They wanted him to rule. And if you remember, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this earth. My kingdom's not of this world. That's not what I came for. And so they missed him because they were trying to make Jesus fit into some kind of box that he was not willing to go in. And so they rejected him. And then they also rejected him because, as it says, he was light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where somebody wakes you up middle of the night or 4 o'clock in the morning and they turn on the lights or somebody walks in, they don't know you're sleeping in the playroom or they turn on the lights, you say, turn that off, turn that off. The light immediately bothers us. We want to shut our eyes away from it. And what Jesus does as the light of the world is exposes us and our filth. And so, of course, we want that rejected. Of course, we'd say, that light is hurting me. That light kind of shows me who I really am, and I don't know if I can bear that. Years ago, we used to take uh, the high school students, you've heard me tell some stories about this, to an ODT, Outward Discipleship Trip. We would take a bunch of high school kids out into the woods for 12 to 14 days. I just love it. 
just broke them down. You know, by like day three, if, I, if by day three I didn't have every kid crying, I didn't think it was a success. I wanted to break them all down. And we did, usually. And then we got to talk to them. Once you break them down, once you take away their phones and their makeup and all of that, you break them. Then you can say, and Jesus loves you with all of your pimples. <laughs> Jesus still loves you even though you're filthy. We used to go caving. And uh, we would put on these clothes and we would go caving, spelunking is what they call it. And you're squeezing a couple places. Not every kid did this, but it was so tight you would have to lay down, exhale, and then move a couple inches because you couldn't be there and breathe at the same time. I can tell some of you are already having panic attacks just because I said that. And then we got out. And when you got out of the cave into the light, it happened every year I did it. We would say, look at you. Look at you. And you couldn't look at And we were covered with filth. Covered with filth. We had no idea how dirty we had gotten. That's what the light does. And that's why people reject it. Because it's going to expose who we are. But here's what he says in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of flesh, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Jesus came so that you might know God, so that you might be in the family, so that you might be born into this family. Not of flesh, not because you're Jewish, not because you grew up at Mitchell Road, not because you're a member, not of the will of man, just because God brought you into his family. Uh, This week I spent some time, about an hour, with a a lovely lady. I'm not going to give you too many details because she's connected to this church. She's a drug addict, and uh, she's become a believer. She's a believer now. So she was an addict for years and years and years. And she sat in my office, and she wanted to meet with me and talk, and she said, Andy, um, I just have these voices in my head that I can't get out that God doesn't really like me. He doesn't really want me to know him. And we started to talk through it a little bit. And one of the things that we realized in the conversation was this. Her dad, don't ever do this to your daughters. Her dad used to tell her, why can't you act like the other kids? I'm pretty sure you're not mine. Told her that for years. Would ask her to take a DNA test to prove it. She said, the last time I remember my dad asking me to take a DNA test to prove that I was his daughter, I was 42 years old, and I finally said, all right, Dad, I'll do it. And he said, no, 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 don't, don't worry about it. It's too late now. Can you imagine that? So when I, once I realized that, put that together, anybody can counsel at that moment. Because then I could just look at her in the eyes and say, you know what? God the Father doesn't require you to take any DNA test to be his child. And immediately, she welled up with tears. You don't have to present adoption papers. You're just adopted. He brings you into the family because of what Christ has done. And he's a good father. That's why J.I. Packer says it this way. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven. He's brought in for supper. He's given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved for and cared for by God the Father is greater. And for some of you today, you need to quit thinking like orphans. That you're on the outskirts or that God's going to make you take a paternity test. Or you have to be born of the flesh or born of the will. When if you claim Christ, Christ has come into the world and you say, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm trusting you. You are in the family of God. And you can enjoy it. And you can relax because he's never going to kick you out. Because Christ has done the work. He would have to forsake his own son's work in Christ to get you out of the family because you are brothers and co-heirs with him. And so it's a beautiful picture that we get when God says, I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to know me. He wants you to know him in the fullness of the gospel and to enjoy him and to remember that you're not born of the flesh. You're born of the spirit of God. We'll see that again a little bit later in John chapter 3. And then verse 14, 
You, good night. Y'all need to pray because uh, verse 14 is probably my favorite verse in the entire Bible. It, it's in the top three for sure. And we might be here all afternoon. There, there's a high propensity that we're going to go to. I mean, I could talk about this verse for hours, but I'm going to do it in five minutes, and then we'll come back to it again and again as we have through our ministry. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as of only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This expression of God became flesh. He became God incarnate. He took on in the carnal body. God himself became flesh. Savor every word of this, that God has not left his divinity, but he has clothed himself with humanity so that we would know him and so that he could know us and so that we would know we have a God who knows every temptation, every trial, every pain, every suffering, who takes on our flesh in order to crucify our flesh because our flesh has to be crucified so that we would have access to God the Father. It was the only way, and he's the only one who could do it. And the glory of of his humility... Just meditate on the humility of God to come to us, to be misunderstood, to be flogged, to be spit upon, to have to deal with these dense-headed disciples who couldn't figure it out until after the resurrection. The humility of God to put up with these Jews who rejected him and who, who were just enamored with the things of this world where he's trying to give them the feast of heaven. The humility of God to be put on the cross where even Zacchaeus, who climbed up in the tree, now is looking up at Jesus on this cross. And we see glimpses every now and then in the Gospel of John. We'll see these glimpses where the clouds part just for a second, and you see more of his glory of who he is, like when he turns the water into wine, or when he is at the transfiguration, or when the demons say to him, no, 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 don't do anything to us. Or when he says almost casually, I could call down legions of angels in heaven and make this whole thing stop right now. And the restraint and the humility to not do any of that out of love for us. He lives with us not so we can live for him. That's a common mistake. He lives for us, so now we live for him. We have all kinds of songs that kind of promote that thinking. He lives with us so that we can live with him, not just for him, but live with him. Matter of fact, in the Greek language here in chapter 14, verse 14, it's he tabernacled with us. The temple is where you used to go. And now God says, no, I'm the tabernacle. I am coming to tabernacle to be with you and to be with you people full of grace and truth. And so that's what he brings to bear the grace that he comes with, and also the truth. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to get those truthful I am statements. Chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. Chapter 11, chapter 10, I'm sorry, I'm the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I'm the resurrection. Chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. And I'm telling you, friends, verse 14 is what you can... You can base and build your entire life on. I've done it. My, I would say my entire life is built on verse 14. And I'm trying to build this entire church on verse 14. That the word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And now we, in the incarnation, live life the same way. You've heard me, the new members, say it. But if you haven't been through the new members recently, let me just repeat it. We initiate with others, we identify with others, and we invade people's lives with truth and with grace. We initiate, we identify, and we invade because people need to know there's a God who's with us, who wants to dwell with us, not just get us to jump through hoops, but there's a God who's with you in that hospital room. 
There's a God who's with you in the boardroom. There's a God who's with you when you lose your job. There's a God who's with you when you lose your purity. There's a God who's with you when you don't know where else to go. There's a God who's with you and wants a relationship with you and wants to give you grace. The incarnation is the only way to live. Years ago, a PCA pastor called me. This was probably 15 years ago. A PCA pastor called me and he said, hey, Andy, I'm a, you don't know me. I don't know you. I know you're in Greenville. You're a PCA pastor. I'm a PCA pastor. I need a favor. That's never a good start to a conversation. I'm like, here we go. Let's see what it is. I'm, I'm hoping it's just like a speaking gig that I can kind of reject. No, it wasn't that. He said, I've got a mentally ill brother. He's adopted. He lives on the wrong side of town in Greenville. My mom just died, his mom. I need you to go find him and tell him. So I did. Not going to turn that down. I got my car. At that time, I was driving a uh, Cutlass, inherited from Elizabeth's grandfather. So I had this old Cutlass. Uh, just awful old man kind of car. And I had a coat and tie on for some reason that day. I'm not sure why. Maybe going to the hospital. And I drove to the wrong side of town. And all I had was an address and a name. And I pulled up. And there's just a bunch of people on the front porches all drinking out of brown paper bags. And they saw me pull in this young whippersnapper with a coat and tie on and an Oldsmobile Cutlass. And they scattered. (laughs) All of them. And then a different crew of people came out onto the front porch who were not the first crew. A different crew came out. And they were suspicious and checking me out. And uh, I probably looked like an IRS auditor. I have no idea what they thought of me. And I walked up to the address and two guys, not my same skin tone obviously, met me. And I said, I don't know why this came out, but I said, you might be scared of me. I doubt it, but I'm pretty scared of you. That's how the conversation started. I said, I got to find this guy. His mom died. I don't know him. I just need to tell him his mom died. And they went looking for three or four houses, finally brought them to me. And then we sat on the porch. I said, hey, I hate to tell you I've never met you, but your mom's dead. I need you to call your brother. He started crying. And we had this weird, at that moment, everybody had empathy, and we had this weird group hug on the porch. These people who had never met, smell of beer still on their mouths. But everybody realized the incarnation, which is somebody just needs to be with you and tell you grace and truth, and it's going to be okay. I've had that happen for me too. So at one point, I'm not going to go into details, but at one point this year, I needed somebody who wasn't just on the phone. And thankfully, I was with my wife, and for three nights in a row, I cried in her arms. Three nights in a row, she held me, she prayed over me, she cared for me, she hugged me, she told me it was going to be okay. We need that. Social media can't do that. We need the word to become flesh and to be where we are. We need people to go into this world and into neighborhoods and into relationships and say, it's going to be okay. We're made for another place. There's a God who's come who wants you to know him. And so he says, I give you grace upon grace. Look at verse 16. Some people have argued with me. Some people have left this church because they said, Andy, you give too much grace. We've literally had people leave the church because of that. Andy, you preach too much grace. Well, Jesus got the same accusation. Because you need obedience. And the way for you to get obedience is more grace, not less grace. Because once you realize what God has done for you, then you willingly, willingly obey. We need grace upon grace. Because look at verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Christ. The law, write this down. The law of God has three purposes. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the Ten Commandments, three purposes. You should know this. Every Christian needs to know this. This is asked on every ordination exam. I'm amazed pastors don't even get this right. And they should never get through if they don't. But here are the three things. The first thing it's supposed to do is convict you of your sin. You read the Ten Commandments and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, I can't do this. The second thing it's supposed to do is to lead you to Christ. There's one who's come not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. 
And the third thing it does is it's useful for daily living. It's still good to follow those commandments and that law of God. But now we follow it with grace and with truth because no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he now has made him known. Well, let me just go quickly. I'm just going to summarize the rest of the chapter. That first point, there's a divine revelation. God wants you to know him. And then there's an earthly realization, which is we get to make him known. So John the Baptist Let me just clarify this. It's not the disciple who Jesus loved. It's a different John. So who wrote this book is not John the Baptist, but the John referred to all throughout this text is John the Baptist, uh, not the author of the gospel. John the Baptist who said, I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist who baptized him with water. John the Baptist who in verse 27 said, his sandals I'm not worthy to tie. That John the Baptist who Jesus called the greatest person who's ever lived, that John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 still says to Jesus, are you the one to come or is there another? John the Baptist at the end of his life even had doubts. That's instructive because you can have your doubts too. Grace is greater than your doubts, but you're free to have them. It it doesn't knock you out of the kingdom. And here John the Baptist, who witnessed all of that, who still wondered, are you the one to come? And Jesus said, yes, I am the one to come. And then we see Andrew. Andrew hears John say, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus turns to Andrew. This is in verse 38. And says, what are you seeking? That's a great question. One of the first things Jesus says in this gospel is, what are you seeking? What is it you actually want? What is it you're trying to get out of this life? And then Andrew goes to his brother. Who's Andrew's brother? It was Peter. And he goes to Peter and says, we've found the Messiah. So are you starting to get the point? John led Andrew. Andrew was his disciple. Andrew led Peter. And then we see Philip. And as soon as Philip realized who Jesus was, he went and found Nathaniel. And so all of this, early on in this chapter, everybody's, we know God, and now we are going to make him known. It's not, they didn't take a class for it. They didn't walk through like a Sunday school class on how to share their faith. They simply said, we found the Messiah. We found who he is. Now just come and see. Just come check him out. That's all that life is, to know God and to make him known. And then Nathaniel, I love his interaction with Nathaniel. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe if you're not a believer, you wonder that same thing. I've seen enough hypocrites in the church. I've seen enough Christians who are mean as snakes. Can anything good come out of Christianity? Is there anything good that comes out of the people that follow Jesus? Well, Jesus says to him, to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under that fig tree. And at that moment, Nathaniel realized, even though he didn't know Jesus, Jesus knew him. And he said, how could that be? And Jesus almost laughed it off and turned with me to the very last line of chapter 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, you have no idea. You thought it was cool that I saw you yesterday under the fig tree? (laughs) Nathaniel, you're going to see so much better things than this. It's going to be astounding to you. The angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, indicating now because Christ is in the world, heaven is open for business. The gates are flung open. It's said of church that church is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I think that's probably, probably pretty good. That here as we get ready to come to this communion table, uh, we're reminded that we know God and we make him known. The heaven now is ready for us to, uh, to embrace Christ, to fall into his arms. In closing, I'll say this. The pick is in. Uh, in the first round, the Pittsburgh Steelers select running back from Alabama, Najee Harris. You're probably all wondering how I'm working in that story at the end of this. Not because I'm an avid Pittsburgh fan, I am. Not because you care, you don't. 
Najee Harris had a draft party. They all have draft parties. They're about to be multi, multi, multi millionaires in uh, one signature. So they have these draft parties. Everybody's around. Najee Harris, he had his draft party at a homeless shelter where he gave him a feast and he brought in presents. Before this guy is becoming a multi, multi millionaire, picked in the first round for the Steelers, which is enough for all of you to become Steelers fans. This story is he had his draft party at a homeless shelter where he told them, hey, this place isn't your home. We're going to get you out of here. Why did he do that? Because him and his mom and his four siblings lived at that homeless shelter for years. And he got out. So when he made it, he goes back to that homeless shelter and says, this place is not your home. There's something better waiting for you. I'm going to give you a little feast just to tide you over and let you know that there's something else waiting. But this place is not your home. That's why Randy Alcorn says, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person that we were made for, Jesus, and the place that we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. So as we come to this table, we come to a table where we get just a little feast in our homeless shelter, which is Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church. We're here waiting, just waiting to get out and go to our true home. But it's just a reminder, a foretaste of what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth. So take your order of worship, turn to the very back page. Let's say this prayer of the valley of the vision together around We are starting a long series in the Gospel of John. We're going to take it. I'm so excited. It's my favorite gospel. Uh, I, I know you're not supposed to say that. It's like saying you have a favorite kid. But it's, it's my favorite gospel. And I'll tell you all the reasons why as we kind of go through this. And we're going to take it chapter by chapter. 
Uh, so we'll be in it for a number of uh, weeks and months. We're not going to get to all of it. Sometimes the pastor might take just a passage. Sometimes the pastor might take uh, drill down to a verse. Sometimes the pastor might preach the whole thing. So chapter by chapter, you do your own study with it. Uh, the Gospel of John, written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he said about himself. That's how he referred to himself. Now, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And you see right off the bat his identity. There's only two eyewitness gospel accounts, Matthew and John. Mark got his information largely from Peter. Luke had to do research. He was on a historical mission to do research and put together Luke and Acts as the sequel. But John was there, and he saw it all happen. And you might ask, and we're not going to go too much into this today, but you might ask, why are there even four Gospels? What does that even mean? Well, it's actually the wrong question. The right question is, why aren't there more? <laughs> Look, if my friends wrote an autobiographic uh, book about me, which will never happen, and my wife wrote one, and the elders wrote one, and then my childhood friends wrote one, there's going to be some similarities. There might even be a couple stories that kind of go across all of them, but they're going to be very different. There, there, couldn't be, there could be thousands and thousands and thousands of Gospels written about Jesus' life. Matter of fact, John says at the end of his, there's too many stories to put in any one book. This is chapter 20, verse 31. So here's the whole point. I write this so that you would believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah that he's the one who was to come. So today, two simple, really simple points, and we're going to spend the vast majority on the first one. There is a divine revelation. And here's the divine revelation. Let me go ahead and give it to you. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. And then there's an earthly realization. There's a divine revelation. God wants you to know him. And the earthly realization, which is this, God wants you to make him known. It's, that's the vision statement of Mitchell Road, to know God and then to make him known. It really comes down to being that simple. Let me read just verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Divine revelation. God wants you to know him. We're, let me just walk through this a little bit. First we see in the beginning was the word and the word was God. There are many, many sermons, dissertations, PhDs written on just that verse alone. Don't overthink it. A word is an expression. 
uh, if you are overjoyed, you would yell or you would say something. Yippee came to my head, but nobody says yippee anymore. You would say something of great joy, or you might look at artwork and you might say, wow, or something might happen and you might say, oh, that hurts. You would express something through words. And here, Jesus, the word becomes flesh. Jesus is the expression of God. He's the expression of the invisible God. He's the incarnate God to show us what God looks like and who he is. And Jesus is quick to say, God's quick to say here, that he's not part of creation. That he was not something that was created. Matter of fact, he has always been. Look at what it says in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In our call to worship this morning, we read Colossians already. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So right off the bat, here's what we get in the Gospel of John. This is the word of God. This is the expression of the invisible God who has become flesh for us. And in him, all things exist and all things hold together. In other words, if you're not realizing that the whole gig is about Jesus, then you're massively off. The whole thing. He is the center of the party. He is the center of life. He is the center of the world. Have you ever been to a birthday party where somebody shows up at the birthday party and thinks it's actually about them and it's not their birthday? I've been to many of those. I'm like, it's not about you. This is all about this girl, this guy. It's their party. And it ruins everything. Everything gets clunky. Everything gets out of alignment when you're catering to somebody who's at the party thinking it's about them, not about the person. The whole of life is to realize it's all about who God is, who was with God, all things made through him. Without him was nothing that was made that was made. And in him was life and it was the light of men. The creation, and this theme of creation continues with light and darkness. See, he had come to these people, look at verse 9, this true light had come into the world, but even the people that he came to, first to the Jews, rejected him. Now, why would people who have been preparing, look at what it says uh, in verse 11, to his own people who do not receive him, the people had been preparing and waiting for years, centuries even, for this Messiah to come, for this Savior to come. Why did they reject him? Why did they miss him? Well, the same reason we miss him and the same reason we reject him. He didn't fit the box that they wanted him to be in. They wanted a political ruler. Uh, they wanted people to run out Rome. They wanted to get... Uh, the Jewish law back in all the communities. They wanted him to take over all the, uh, the places of power. They wanted him to rule. And if you remember, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this earth. My kingdom's not of this world. That's not what I came for. And so they missed him because they were trying to make Jesus fit into some kind of box that he was not willing to go in. And so they rejected him. And then they also rejected him because, as it says, he was light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where somebody wakes you up middle of the night or 4 o'clock in the morning and they turn on the lights or somebody walks in, they don't know you're sleeping in the playroom or they turn on the lights, you say, turn that off, turn that off. The light immediately bothers us. We want to shut our eyes away from it. And what Jesus does as the light of the world is exposes us and our filth. And so, of course, we want that rejected. Of course, we'd say, I, I, that light is hurting me. That light kind of shows me who I really am, and I don't know if I can bear that. Years ago, we used to take uh, the high school students, you've heard me tell some stories about this, to uh, ODT, Outward Discipleship Trip. We would take a uh, bunch of high school kids out into the woods for 12 to 14 days. I just love it. Just broke them down. You know, by like day three, if, I, if by day three I didn't have every kid crying, I didn't think it was a success. I wanted to break them all down. And we did, usually. And then we got to talk to them. Once you break them down, once you take away their 
phones and their makeup and all of that, you break them, then you can say, and Jesus loves you with all of your pimples. <laughs> Jesus still loves you even though you're filthy. We used to go caving. And uh, we would put on these clothes and we would go caving, spelunking is what they call it. And you're squeezing a couple places. Not every kid did this, but it was so tight you would have to lay down, exhale, and then move a couple inches because you couldn't be there and breathe at the same time. I can tell some of you are already having panic attacks just because I said that. And then we got out. And when you got out of the cave into the light, it happened every year I did it. We would say, look at you. Look at you. And you couldn't look at And we were covered with filth. Covered with filth. We had no idea how dirty we had gotten. That's what the light does. And that's why people reject it. Because it's going to expose who we are. But here's what he says in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of flesh, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Jesus came so that you might know God, so that you might be in the family, so that you might be born into this family. Not of flesh, not because you're Jewish, not because you grew up at Mitchell Road, not because you're a member, not of the will of man, just because God brought you into his family. Uh, this week I spent some time, about an hour, with a, a lovely lady. I'm not going to give you too many details because she's connected to this church. She's a drug addict, and uh, she's become a believer. She's a believer now. So she was an addict for years and years and years. And she sat in my office, and she wanted to meet with me and talk, and she said, Andy, um, I just have these voices in my head that I can't get out, that God doesn't really like me. He doesn't really want me to know him. And we started to talk through it a little bit. And one of the things that we realized in the conversation was this. Her dad, don't ever do this to your daughters. Her dad used to tell her, why can't you act like the other kids? I'm pretty sure you're not mine. Told her that for years. Would ask her to take a DNA test to prove it. She said, the last time I remember my dad asking me to take a DNA test to prove that I was his daughter, I was 42 years old, and I finally said, all right, dad, I'll do it. He said, no, 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 don't, don't worry about it. It's too late now. Can you imagine that? So when I, once I realized that, put that together, anybody can counsel at that moment. Because then I could just look at her in the eyes and say, you know what? God the Father doesn't require you to take any DNA test to be his child. And immediately, she welled up with tears. You don't have to present adoption papers. You're just adopted. He brings you into the family because of what Christ has done. And he's a good father. That's why J.I. Packer says it this way. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven. He's brought in for supper. He's given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved for and cared for by God the Father is greater. And for some of you today, you need to quit thinking like orphans, that you're on the outskirts or that God's going to make you take a paternity test or you have to be born of the flesh or born of the will. When if you claim Christ, Christ has come into the world and you say, Jesus, I'm following you, I'm trusting you, you are in the family of God. And you can enjoy it and you can relax because he's never going to kick you out because Christ has done the work. He would have to forsake his own son's work in Christ to get you out of the family because you are brothers and co-heirs with him. And so it's a beautiful picture that we get when God says, I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to know me. He wants you to know him in the fullness of the gospel and to enjoy him and to remember that you're not born of the flesh, you're born of the spirit of God. We'll see that again a little bit later in John chapter three. And then verse 14, you, good night. Y'all need to pray because uh, verse 14 is probably my favorite verse in the entire Bible. It, it's in the top three for sure. And we might be here all afternoon. 
there, there's a high propensity that we're going to go to. I mean, I could talk about this verse for hours, but I'm going to do it in five minutes, and then we'll come back to it again and again as we have through our ministry. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory as of only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This expression of God became flesh. He became God incarnate. He took on in the carnal body. God himself became flesh. Savor every word of this. That God has not left his divinity but he has clothed himself with humanity so that we would know him and so that he could know us and so that we would know we have a God who knows every temptation, every trial, every pain, every suffering, who takes on our flesh in order to crucify our flesh because our flesh has to be crucified so that we would have access to God the Father. It was the only way, and he's the only one who could do it. And the glory of of his humility... Just meditate on the humility of God to come to us, to be misunderstood, to be flogged, to be spit upon, to have to deal with these dense-headed disciples who couldn't figure it out until after the resurrection. The humility of God to put up with these Jews who rejected him and who, who were just enamored with the things of this world where he's trying to give them the feast of heaven. The humility of God to be put on the cross where even Zacchaeus, who climbed up in the tree, now is looking up at Jesus on this cross. And we see glimpses every now and then in the Gospel of John. We'll see these glimpses where the clouds part just for a second, and you see more of his glory of who he is, like when he turns the water into wine, or when he is at the transfiguration, or when the demons say to him, no, 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 don't do anything to us. Or when he says almost casually, I could call down legions of angels in heaven and make this whole thing stop right now. And the restraint and the humility to not do any of that out of love for us. He lives with us, not so we can live for him. That's a common mistake. He lives for us, so now we live for him. We have all kinds of songs that kind of promote that thinking. He lives with us so that we can live with him, not just for him, but live with him. Matter of fact, in the Greek language here in chapter 14, verse 14, it's he tabernacled with us. The temple is where you used to go. And now God says, no, I'm the tabernacle. I am coming to tabernacle to be with you and to be with you people full of grace and truth. And so that's what he brings to bear the grace that he comes with, and also the truth. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to get those truthful I am statements. Chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. Chapter 11, chapter 10, I'm sorry, I'm the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I'm the resurrection. Chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. And I'm telling you, friends, verse 14 is what you can... You can base and build your entire life on. I've done it. My, I would say my entire life is built on verse 14. And I'm trying to build this entire church on verse 14. That the word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And now we, in the incarnation, live life the same way. You've heard me, the new members, say it. But if you haven't been through the new members recently, let me just repeat it. We initiate with others, we identify with others, and we invade people's lives with truth and with grace. We initiate, we identify, and we invade because people need to know there's a God who's with us, who wants to dwell with us, not just get us to jump through hoops, but there's a God who's with you in that hospital room. There's a God who's with you in the boardroom. There's a God who's with you when you lose your job. There's a God who's with you when you lose your purity. There's a God who's with you when you don't know where else to go. There's a God who's with you and wants a relationship with you. 
and wants to give you grace. The incarnation is the only way to live. Years ago, a PCA pastor called me. This was probably 15 years ago. A PCA pastor called me and he said, hey, Andy, I'm a, you don't know me. I don't know you. I know you're in Greenville. You're a PCA pastor. I'm a PCA pastor. I need a favor. That's never a good start to a conversation. I'm like, here we go. Let's see what it is. I'm, I'm hoping it's just like a speaking gig that I can kind of reject. No, it wasn't that. He said, I've got a mentally ill brother. He's adopted. He lives on the wrong side of town in Greenville. My mom just died, his mom. I need you to go find him and tell him. So I did. I'm not going to turn that down. I got my car. At that time, I was driving a uh, Cutlass, inherited from Elizabeth's grandfather. So I had this old Cutlass. Uh, just awful old man kind of car. And I had a coat and tie on for some reason that day. I'm not sure why, maybe going to the hospital. And I drove to the wrong side of the town. And all I had was an address and a name. And I pulled up and there's just a bunch of people on the front porches all drinking out of brown paper bags. And they saw me pull in this young whippersnapper with a coat and tie on and an Oldsmobile cutlass. And they scattered, all of them. And then a different crew of people came out onto the front porch who were not the first crew. A different crew came out. And they were suspicious and checking me out. And uh, I probably looked like an IRS auditor. I have no idea what they thought of me. And I walked up to the address and two guys, not my same skin tone, obviously, met me. And I said, I don't know why this came out, but I said, you might be scared of me. I doubt it, but I'm pretty scared of you. That's how the conversation started. I said, I got to find this guy. His mom died. I don't know him. I just need to tell him his mom died. And they went looking for three or four houses, finally brought them to me. And then we sat on the porch. I said, hey, I hate to tell you I've never met you, but your mom's dead. I need you to call your brother. And he started crying. And we had this weird, at that moment, everybody had empathy. And we had this weird group hug on the porch. These people who had never met, smell of beer still on their mouths. But everybody realized the incarnation, which is somebody needs to be with you and tell you grace and truth, and it's going to be okay. I've had that happen for me too. So at one point, I'm not going to go into details, but at one point this year, I needed somebody who wasn't just on the phone. And thankfully, I was with my wife, and for three nights in a row, I cried in her arms. Three nights in a row. She held me. She prayed over me. She cared for me. She hugged me. She told me it was going to be okay. We need that. Social media can't do that. We need the word to become flesh and to be where we are. We need people to go into this world and into neighborhoods and into relationships and say, it's going to be okay. We're made for another place. There's a God who's come who wants you to know him. And so he says, I give you grace upon grace. Look at verse 16. Some people have argued with me. Some people have left this church because they said, Andy, you give too much grace. We've literally had people leave the church because of that. Andy, you preach too much grace. Well, Jesus got the same accusation. Because you need obedience. And the way for you to get obedience is more grace, not less grace. Because once you realize what God has done for you, then you willingly, willingly obey. We need grace upon grace. Because look at verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Christ. The law, write this down. The law of God has three purposes. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the Ten Commandments, three purposes. You should know this. Every Christian needs to know this. This is asked on every ordination exam. I'm amazed pastors don't even get this right. And they should never get through if they don't. But here are the three things. The first thing it's supposed to do is convict you of your sin. You read the Ten Commandments and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, I can't do this. The second thing it's supposed to do is to lead you to Christ. There's one who's come not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And the third thing it does is it's useful for daily living. It's still good to follow those commandments and that law of God. But now we follow it with grace and with truth because no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he 
now has made him known. Well, let me just go quickly. I'm just going to summarize the rest of the chapter. That first point, there's a divine revelation. God wants you to know him. And then there's an earthly realization, which is we get to make him known. So John the Baptist, let me just clarify this, is not the disciple who Jesus loved. It's a different John. So who wrote this book is not John the Baptist, but the John referred to all throughout this text is John the Baptist, uh, not the author of the gospel. John the Baptist who said, I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist who baptized him with water. John the Baptist who in verse 27 said, his sandals I'm not worthy to tie. That John the Baptist who Jesus called the greatest person who's ever lived, that John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 still says to Jesus, are you the one to come or is there another? John the Baptist at the end of his life even had doubts. That's instructive because you can have your doubts too. Grace is greater than your doubts, but you're free to have them. It it doesn't knock you out of the kingdom. And here John the Baptist who witnessed all of that, who still wondered, are you the one to come? And Jesus said, yes, I am the one to come. And then we see Andrew. Andrew hears John say, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus turns to Andrew. This is in verse 38 and says, what are you seeking? That's a great question. One of the first things Jesus says in this gospel is, what are you seeking? What is it you actually want? What is it you're trying to get out of this life? And then Andrew goes to his brother. Who's Andrew's brother? It was Peter. And he goes to Peter and says, we've found the Messiah. So you're starting to get the point. John led Andrew. Andrew was his disciple. Andrew led Peter. And then we see Philip. And as soon as Philip realized who Jesus was, he went and found Nathaniel. And so all of this, early on in this chapter, everybody's, we know God, and now we are going to make him known. It's not, they didn't take a class for it. They didn't walk through like a Sunday school class on how to share their faith. They simply said, we found the Messiah. We found who he is. Now just come and see. Just come check him out. That's all that life is, to know God and to make him known. And then Nathaniel, I love his interaction with Nathaniel. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe if you're not a believer, you wonder that same thing. I've seen enough hypocrites in the church. I've seen enough Christians who are mean as snakes. Can anything good come out of Christianity? Is there anything good that comes out of the people that follow Jesus? Well, Jesus says to him, to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under that fig tree. And at that moment, Nathaniel realized, even though he didn't know Jesus, Jesus knew him. And he said, how could that be? And Jesus almost laughed it off and turned with me to the very last line of chapter 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, you have no idea. You thought it was cool that I saw you yesterday under the fig tree? (laughs) Nathaniel, you're going to see so much better things than this. It's going to be astounding to you. The angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, in other words, indicating now because Christ is in the world, heaven is open for business. The gates are flung open. It's said of church that church is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, and I think that's probably probably pretty good. That here as we get ready to come to this communion table, uh, we're reminded that we know God and we make him known. That heaven now is ready for us to, uh, to embrace Christ, to fall into his arms. In closing, I'll say this, the pick is in. Uh, in the first round, the Pittsburgh Steelers select, running back from Alabama, Najee Harris. You're probably all wondering how I'm working in that story at the end of this. Not because I'm an avid Pittsburgh fan, I am. Not because you care, you don't. Najee Harris had a draft party. They all have draft parties. They're about to be multi, multi, multi-millionaires in uh, one signature. So they have these draft parties, everybody's around. Najee 
Harris, he had his draft party at a homeless shelter where he gave him a feast and he brought in presents. Before this guy is becoming a multi-multi-millionaire, picked in the first round for the Steelers, which is enough for all of you to become Steelers fans, this story is. He had his draft party at a homeless shelter where he told them, hey, this place isn't your home. We're going to get you out of here. Why did he do that? Because him and his mom and his four siblings lived at that homeless shelter for years. And he got out. So when he made it, he goes back to that homeless shelter and says, this place is not your home. There's something better waiting for you. I'm going to give you a little feast just to tide you over and let you know that there's something else waiting. But this place is not your home. That's why Randy Alcorn says, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person that we were made for, Jesus, and the place that we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. So as we come to this table, we come to a table where we get just a little feast in our homeless shelter, which is Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church. We're here waiting, just waiting to get out and go to our true home. But it's just a reminder, a foretaste of what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth.